Welcome to another inspirational podcast from Junction 28 Church. We're so glad that you've decided to join us today and know that God wants to bless you with this message. We'd love to hear about it, so why not tell us on our Facebook or Twitter pages? If you would like further information about who we are, check out our website www.thejunction28church.com. We hope you enjoy this message. to Mark um, chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. So this is something that's, um, as I said, it's, it, this is something that's fresh on my heart, a message that I've put together, you know, just this week. So it's not one that we pulled off the shelf from about three years ago that I'm hoping that you've forgotten about or anything like that. This is fresh, okay? So, um, you know, a lot of time and effort and prayer. And I believe that tonight, just as Tony said, God wants to speak something to us. You know, and I, I do believe that uh, sometimes there are words in season from God. We all receive those on, on occasions. But I believe that, you know, as a church and as a leadership, if we're preaching from the Bible, then it doesn't matter what message it is, there's something for everybody. Because God's word is God's word to us. It doesn't matter what the topic, doesn't matter what the preacher, doesn't matter the time of year or anything like that. There's something in it for you. Do you believe that there's something in this for tonight for you? Okay, excellent. Let's, uh, let's read together. Um, Mark 10 from verse 17, the rich and the kingdom of God. Although I don't want you, I read out the, high, uh, the, the, you know, the title um, of this section of scripture. Sometimes I like to ignore them because how many of you know actually that sometimes what you read in a, through a passage doesn't actually match up with the heading that's above it. Those aren't actually scripture by the way, you know the bit, bits in bold. They're not actually part of scripture, they were put in to divide things up. So uh, verse 17 says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. Yeah, I really love, I really love that, that part. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is, in fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God... All things are possible. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last 
and many who are last will be first. You know, I find this a remarkable chapter of the Bible. Well, it's God's Word. I I find all of His Word remarkable, especially when He starts speaking to you, especially when He starts stirring something up in a certain passage of Scripture and you start seeing things uh, the way that you may have never seen them before. So tonight, before I end up going off on a tangent, really what I want to speak to you tonight, the basis of what I want to speak to you tonight about is change. Okay? Change. Now, I understand that that's obviously, you know, quite a broad term, you know, we're human beings, the very nature of our, you know, physical being and our emotional being is something that's constantly always changing. And it's a very broad term and it could mean a a million different things to a million different people, couldn't it? So what I want us to do is hone in a little bit and, and focus in a little bit so that we can define what I'm talking about in our context. That change is something that I'm sure you will agree, something that we all need, yeah? Does everybody agree with that? Change is something that we all need, but it's certainly something that we don't all like, isn't it? It's an ongoing part of our life. Because of its constant fluctuating nature, life demands adjustments to our, you know, to our schedules and to our plans. For instance, you know, I thought about it this way. When I was a single man, I lived very differently to the way that I live now I'm a married man. You know, you're, you know, for you guys in, in here that are married, you know, your life changes very much, doesn't it, when you get married? Well, if you still live like a single man when you are married, then, you know, you're going to end up back on your mum's sofa, aren't you? So you bet should, you, you know, you, sh- you should be changing, let's just say that. And uh, either, <laughs> big yes from Tony. Um, when you have children as well, you know, you know, marriage is one thing, but then when children come along as well, you know, my word, life changes very dramatically again then little things that you took for granted, like being able to just, you know, turn to your spouse and say, oh, shall we go out and, shall we go out and watch a movie? It's seven o'clock, let's go out, we've got the night free, let's go and watch a movie. Those days are gone. You have to get a babysitter, don't you? You have to get on the phone to the, to the grandparents and say, please, you have to beg for like weeks, you have to keep dropping hints in there and say, oh, you know, I've, how are you doing? Oh, you know, we've not been out for a little while, you know, it's, we could do with a night out, you know, preempt it a little bit and then, um, you know, eventually just hit them with it and say, can you, can you watch the kids for us, please? We need to go out. We need to escape. Please let us out. And um, I'm not painting a very pretty picture of my household, am I? Uh, and things like when you get a new job, it changes, it changes the dynamic of your life, doesn't it? You know, maybe you're working 20 hours and all of a sudden you've taken on a job where you're working 40 hours. It changes your schedules. It changes your plans. It changes the dynamic of your life. So essentially what I'm saying is, especially in the 21st century, change is the new norm, isn't it? Change is the new norm. Change is something that is a daily part of life now. But as believers, as believers, this is us in our context, as believers, our spiritual lives call for more than slight changes to our calendar, slight changes to our agenda, slight changes and little tweaks here and there, tiny adjustments. Our lives need transformation. How many of you know that as a, as, a, as a believer, your life doesn't need just tiny little tweaks here and there, as helpful as they can be. Sometimes it's good to make tiny adjustments, but your life needs transformation. What we see here in, our, you know, in this passage that we've, uh, we've just read, Mark 10, is uh, a man that approaches Jesus with a very genuine desire. A genuine desire. In fact, he's got quite a, quite a nice attitude. You know, when you read through this, you sometimes get the tone of, you know, what's going on. And it seems like this is quite a remarkable man. He's, he's got a good attitude and he comes to Jesus. He falls on his knees. I like that. It shows like a humility. It shows a genuineness about him. He falls on his knees. And his desire is, I, I want right standing with God. 
It's something that so many people desire, isn't it? Something that, you know, if you're a Christian, at one time you desired right standing with God. And because of what Jesus did for you, you now have it. What he's essentially saying is, I want to be in the right place with God. I want to be on right terms with God. But as I read through this man's encounter with Jesus, you know, I can't help thinking that what he was expecting from Jesus was not what he got from Jesus. You get that quite a lot in the scriptures though, don't you? People turn up expecting one thing and boom, you get something completely different. I can't help thinking that this guy turned up uh, and started speaking to Jesus. How do I inherit eternal life? How do I get right standing with God? And he was expecting Jesus to give him a five-step book. You know, five steps to right standing with God. We've all got those books on our, on our, um, on our bookshelves, haven't we? Like six steps to a better marriage, you know, ten steps to a better prayer life, and six uh, steps to that, seven steps to the other. And, uh, and it's kind of like this guy is, is expecting that from Jesus. He's, help, he's expecting him to say, you know, just tweak this there, just tweak that there, and then that's it. You'll be all right. You'll have right standing with God. And it seems... It actually seems to me that Jesus kind of leads him down that trail to start with. Listen to what he says. It, it, it says, as Jesus started out on his way, a man uh, ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. and says, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. And he says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Uh, do not defraud. Honour your mother and, uh, mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a little boy. You can see the earnestness in him. He's saying, I've been doing all these, you know, five steps to right standing with God all of my life and nothing seems to work. Nothing seems to satisfy that urge for right standing with God. It doesn't work. And so Jesus is kind of saying, you know the steps. But then Jesus does what he seems to always do best. He hits him with the truth. He hits him with the truth. And this guy isn't expecting it all at all. You see, what this guy wanted from Jesus that day is he wanted to know how to have right standing with God. He wanted the, uh, the, the satisfaction and the peace that comes from having right standing with God and being in right relationship with God. But he didn't want the transformation that right standing with God requires of every single person. You see, you know, you'll have heard it said, and I've heard it said, that you know, salvation is a, is a free gift, and that is so true. And it is a free gift, but can I just tell you, it requires a lot of you. You know, Christianity is, it requires a lot of you because it requires life transformation. You know, Pastor Danny spoke a message um, a few weeks back now, uh, not a few weeks, but I think it was like two weeks ago or something like that, about, you know, how we can accept Jesus for salvation, can't we? We like the benefits of, of salvation. We like being in right standing with God. But how about actually making him the Lord of your life? How about actually making him, uh, involving him in all of the decisions that you make? You know, in, uh, in the relationships that you have, in the way that you bring up your kids, in the jobs that you choose, in everyday big decisions. How about actually making him the Lord of your life and following his direction then? That's a whole different ball game, isn't it? So this man wanted right standing with God and the benefits of salvation, but he didn't want the life transformation that that required of him. You know, the fact that um, Jesus raises the issue of this man's financial status, how many of you know that's actually not the heart of what is, what is being talked about in this passage? That's not the heart of it. How many of us read, in, uh, read this thinking that this is a passage about money? 
you know, it's, I've read this passage so many times, just like you probably have in the past. And on the surface, it looks like it's a passage about money, isn't it? It isn't actually a passage about money. It's a passage about your heart. It's a passage about this man's heart and the state of it. What Jesus was confronting in this man's life is the fact that God can never really have this man's full heart because something else occupies it. And the same is true of us, isn't it? The same can be true of us. Jesus isn't saying that, you know, it's sinful and it's wrong to be, you know, well off financially, for instance, or, uh, you know, to be successful in your business and to have, you know, good uh, good finance available to you and good resource. He's not saying it's wrong for you to, you know, be madly in love with, you know, with your spouse and and to really love your your family. They're all fantastic things, things that God actually requires of you. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong for you to enjoy hobbies in your life and have certain pleasures that you really take uh, a fond liking to. But what he is saying is that when something occupies the place in your heart that God should occupy, then it's become a stumbling block for your faith. It's become a stumbling block that hinders our relationship with him. You wouldn't, and you wouldn't think of something so, this is the thing, right? When it comes to, you know, let's just say it how it is, but idols in our heart, sometimes in and of themselves, they can be great things. They can be great things. You know, your wife, your husband, your children, something like that. But when they occupy the place in your heart, first and foremost, that should be given to God, then they become a stumbling block between you and your relationship with him. This man's wealth wasn't an issue to God. You know how I know that? Because there was plenty of people, uh, there's plenty of people in the world, sorry, you know, people that I know of even, that are, are very well off financially, some quite very wealthy people, but they use the wealth that they've got as a tool to worship him and to show love for God and love for others. The issue for this man was that his possessions possessed him. Do you get what I mean? His possessions possessed him. So this man wasn't in need of, you know, just a few tweaks here and there. He wasn't need of, in need of, you know, uh, sort your calendar out there and make a little bit more time for God. You know, try to spend a little bit longer reading your Bible in the morning before you go to work. Pray for an extra 10 minutes before you go to bed at night. Um, you know, make sure that you go to two services on Sunday rather than going to, to just one because, you know, that'll, that'll, you know, get you in right standing with God, that will. You know, make sure that you help your wife out with the kids when you get home from work rather than just, you know, going straight to the sofa. You know, all of these things that maybe, you know, like I said, in and of themselves are great things. And sometimes we have to make little tweaks. But this guy wasn't in need of a few little, little tweaks to his life. They're all great things, like I said, and we may benefit from making them. But lasting change in our lives, lasting change requires transformation. Like, just think about it. This, Jesus could have said to this man, you know, um, okay, just make sure, you know, you're quite a wealthy guy. Make sure you give a few, few quid to charity. Come on, you're not going to miss it, are you? He could have said, make sure that you give a little bit of money away to the poor. But that wouldn't have got to the heart of the issue, would it? Because his money would have still had a hold on him. His money would have still had a hold on him. Now, Jesus said to him, He required something massive of him. He wasn't banking on Jesus saying this at all. That's why it says his face fell. They're quite dramatic words that the Bible uses there. His face literally fell. You imagine he's, you know, hanging on every word that Jesus says. He's heard that this is a great man and he's expecting some really fantastic wisdom. And Jesus says, everything that you own, I want you to give it away, give it to the poor, and then you can follow me. 
You know, and you imagine the face suddenly, all of a sudden, just hits the floor, doesn't it? Some people poorly interpret, you know, this, this passage as meaning that, uh, you know, Jesus wants us to live with nothing and to be in poverty. You know, I, I've known people to think that poverty is a sign of holiness. That's not true at all, either. Just the same as some people take finance and wealth to be a sign of, uh, uh, of, of holiness and, like, blessing from God. You know, you're not saved by being wealthy and you're not saved by being poor. It doesn't matter what your status in life doesn't matter where you're from like Tony was saying earlier on you doesn't matter the color of your skin it doesn't matter your social background it doesn't matter your intellectual level everything nothing like that matters at all the thing that counts is that Jesus Christ died for you it's not poverty that saves you and live in a certain way it's not being rich that saves you and live in a certain way it's Jesus Christ that saves you So people sometimes, uh, sometimes interpret that Jesus wants us to live with nothing and live in poverty. And that's just not true. I want to tell you tonight, if you're well resourced and you have plenty, then what I would say to you is use it to worship him. Use it to worship him. Enjoy the blessing that God has given you. Enjoy it. But use it to worship him. Because it can either be a tool or it can be an idol. A tool to worship God with or an idol to steal the place in your heart that God wants. It says that this man, unfortunately, went, sadly went away disheartened because he didn't like what Jesus required of him. It says that this, this man's face fell because he had great, we uh, great wealth. You know, it's only my opinion, right? This is just my opinion, me reading into this, into this passage a little bit. But Jesus must have discerned from this man's conversation with him, you know, in the build-up to you know, what we hear about and the conversation that he had. He must have discerned that this man's wealth was a big issue for him. And that's why he challenged him regarding his wealth. Because, you know, you think about it, he could have just said the same thing to this man as he said to many other people that we read about in the Gospels. Believe in me. Because that's how you get right, right relationship with God. We know that, don't we? Believe in me. Believe that I am God. That's kind of why he says to him, why are you calling me good? You know, he's, he's kind of playing with him a little bit there. He's saying, you, you know, you call me good. You know, God... God's the only one that's good. Are you saying that I'm God? And that's the real key to right standing with God, isn't it? And right relationship with God is knowing that Jesus Christ is a saviour sent by God. So you can easily uh, take this as uh, building up a picture that Jesus had a bit of a problem with wealthy people, but he didn't at all. You know, if you want some proof of that, go to Luke 8, uh, 1-3. Because I had to look at this for myself. Sometimes you just got to search a little bit in the in the Bible and study these things. I'm thinking, you know, did Jesus actually did Jesus have a problem with money? You know, you go to a passage like Luke um, eight one to three. It actually speaks of a group of women that were um, supporting Jesus's ministry out of their own means, and they were very wealthy individuals. Jesus didn't have a problem with money. I just want to say to you tonight that if you've got some kind of thinking in your in your mind, you know, and this may be from years and years and years of you know, you're building up a theology in your mind that God has some kind of problem with money. I want you to know tonight, you can be free of that. He doesn't have any problem with money. You use it to worship him, and I tell you what, he'll, he'll bless you abundantly. Because if he can find somebody that he can trust, if he can find somebody that he can trust with finance, then let me tell you, he'll pour finance out into your life. 
What this man needed was a transformation of heart. Just like uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus in, um, in John chapter 3, you know, a lot of you are familiar with this. He said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus just couldn't get his head around it, could he? It's no good, uh, you know, trying to sort out the old self because you just won't be able to. That's essentially what he's saying to Nicodemus because everybody had in their minds and every other religion that we still see in the world today other than Christianity still holds to this belief that it's about you trying to sort out your old self, trying to polish it up and make it look good to God. But Christianity goes completely against that. It says there's no point in cleaning up your old self because you won't be able to do it. It doesn't matter how polished up it is and how shiny it looks, it's still not going to be good enough for God. What you need is a new self. And Nicodemus just couldn't get his head around this. What you need is complete transformation, a new life, rather than trying to polish up the old one. So, you know, I want, I want you to hear me tonight, hear the heart of this message. Transformation is not about you trying harder to have a better life and to be a better person. That's, uh, transformation won't take place in your life while ever you're striving to do that. The change that people need is not simply to be a better person, you know, because that would just be a complete misunderstanding of, of change and transformation. The gospel is so much bigger than just mere, you know, moralism. The, often the way we think about, you know, coming into right, right standing with God is that, you know, you get angry a little bit less and you may, you know, say a few less swear words and stuff like that and you may, you know, uh, get up a little bit earlier in the morning to pray and stuff like that. But the gospel is so much more than just mere moralism. And people need to understand the very nature of transformation. Real lasting change starts with a new life, not just a new leaf. Do you get what I mean by that? I'll say that again. Real lasting change starts with a new life, not just a new leaf. You know, transformation is not, you know, a new leaf is like a, a New Year's resolutions. I'm not knocking New Year's resolutions, but I've got to be honest, I never make any. Do you know why? Because I never stick to them. So there's no point, is there? <laughs> because three weeks in, you know, when you've been trying to lose weight, you'll have lost a pound, but then you end up gaining three anyway, don't you? So it's like, it's a new leaf. Do you understand what I mean? It's a new leaf. It's not a new life. And the thing is with God, when he requires us to change, this is something that I really want you to hear because I don't want it to seem like, you know, God's just knocking you over the head with a hammer. He never does that. He never does that. You know, he may, he may really, really challenge you and say some real tough things to you, hoping that you'll change. But what the, th the difference with God is that he always gives you the tools, he always gives you the empowerment to be able to make the change. He doesn't just whack you over the head and tell you how bad you are. He says, you know what, you're not living right, or, you know, this needs to change in your life. You need to transform in this area. But you know what? I understand that you're not going to be able to do it on your own. Because I'm a good and gracious Father, I'm going to give you the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. The Apostle Paul wrote these words uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. I apologise, I've not given my um, scriptures to, uh, to Sam at the back. So I'll just read this out. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And look... New things have come. The very heart of Christian faith revolves around change, doesn't it? But it's not turning over a new leaf. It's about living out a new life. So I want to ask you, I want to ask you a question briefly. Uh, I've thought about this myself. I've thought long and hard about this. 
Um, so I don't want you to put any hands up or anything like that, but just take it away with you if you're making notes tonight. What is the goal of our discipleship? So for every person that is a believer, what is the goal of discipleship? Sounds like a basic question, doesn't it? But when sometimes when you ask yourself the basic questions, you realise this is harder to answer than I thought, don't you? And this is the conclusion that I've come to. Ultimately, discipleship means that we aim to become more like our Saviour Jesus. That's it. If you want to boil it down into its, into its very essence, that as the months and the years pass by in our walk with him, our character begins to take on a closer resemblance to him. That is discipleship. If you want to know if you're following Jesus, then the question that you've got to ask yourself is this, am I becoming more like him? Discipleship in its purest form, that's kind of like its simplest definition, if you like. We become more like Jesus. But that for you and me means change. It means that change has to take place in our lives, change takes place in our hearts, change takes place in our minds. But here's the thing, and this is where it gets difficult, and I said this right at the beginning of the message, I don't know if you've noticed, but human beings don't really like change, do we? We avoid it like the plague. What is it about the human condition that resists change? You know, and I I was reading this in Galatians 17. I've got to be honest, this has been a a helpful scripture to me. Do you know, when I was uh, a little bit younger, I used to think to myself, what is it that's... What is it about me that sometimes doesn't seem to be able to grasp hold of the things that God's trying to do in my life? You know, and this is a scripture I've read many times. But when God actually opened my eyes to let me understand, this was really helpful. It says, for the flesh, this is Galatians 5.17, it says, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want. You see, according to the truth of God's word, your flesh doesn't want for you what God wants for you. Is that helpful to anyone? That hit me like a ton of bricks, I've got to be honest. What I want for me is not what God wants for me. In other words, what my flesh wants for me is not what God wants for me. Our flesh is at at war with God's spirit, if you want to understand it that way. But if we're saved, our spirit is connected to God's spirit. It's, it's, it wants what he wants, but our flesh still doesn't want it, and it competes, it battles against it. So, you know, sometimes the things that you're going through in your life, and I, I, you know, Pastor Paul has, has mentioned this in his messages before, sometimes we, get really, we overstate our own importance, don't we, when we say, the enemy's attacking me, the enemy's attacking me, the enemy's attacking me. Now, the enemy's not like God. He can't be in loads of different places all at once. He's not omnipresent. So if the enemy's attacking you, you must, be, you must be pretty darn special. Could I just suggest to you tonight to stop being quite so super spiritual and understand that sometimes the enemy isn't attacking you, you're just living in flesh that doesn't want what God wants and that's why you struggle against what God wants for you. But the great news is, when you're saved by Jesus Christ, your spirit now is connected with him. One of the best ways I ever came to understand this, you know, I heard one pastor teaching about this once, and he said, it's like every decision that you ever make, you know, there's a board, boardroom meeting that takes place, you know, inside you. And, you know, and who turns up to that meeting is body, soul, mind, and spirit. And the thing is, if you're saved, your spirit wants what the spirit wants, as in what God wants, his spirit. But the other three aren't interested in it at all. So the very thing 
that you need if you're going to make decisions based on God. You need the loudest voice in that boardroom meeting to be the Spirit, isn't it? So you need to get into God's Word. You need to pray. You need to uh, seek God to be able to hear His heart for you. So what I want to do tonight, I, you know, I, I've, I feel like I portrayed really well there that, you know, we need change, don't we? We need change. This man needed a transformation in his life. But what I wanted to do was um, to give you three areas that I've been thinking about that I feel are essential areas. I know I said at the beginning, didn't I, that this guy was expecting like a five steps to right standing with God. This isn't, this isn't that. There's many other areas, but these are three, I believe, essential uh, key ingredients to taking on the change in your life that God desires for you. I'm going to give you the three if you're taking notes. First one is challenge. First one is challenge. Okay? I'll move on for the sake of time. If you, if you want to hear these again afterwards, you can come up and find me after, after the meeting. First one, challenge. The second one, teachability. And the third one, accountability. Accountability. You know, you may, you may think that's, you know, that's a strange one. But can I just tell you, if the only person in your life that you ever speak to about your relationship with God is you, then you're setting yourself up for disaster. You're setting yourself up for disaster. If the only person that you're accountable to is you, you're going to come unstuck. So anyway, the first one, challenge. The reality is that very few of us ever change unless we're challenged, do we? Or is that just me? We, never, we don't change unless we're challenged, do we? So an essential ingredient for change is being challenged. And what that means, I believe, is that we have to intentionally open ourselves up to be challenged in our lives, in our walk with God, in our marriages, you know, in our parenthood, in our workplaces, in all of these different areas. We have to intentionally open ourselves up to being challenged. Now, I'm aware that that's actually quite difficult, isn't it? Would anybody find that difficult? Yeah? I'd find that difficult because it means that we have to make ourselves vulnerable, doesn't it? And I don't know if you've noticed again, as being a human being, one thing that we really, really try to avoid is being vulnerable. We hate to feel vulnerable. So, you know, let me just, let me just be clear on this. What this doesn't mean is that you, you become so, you know, open with everybody that, you know, you, so, you make yourself like a dartboard for everybody to throw, everybody to have a pop at. You know, that's, that's, I'm not getting at that at all. And what I'm talking about here is finding people in your life that love you, that care about you, that actually have a relationship with you and want to see you succeed in your life, in your marriages, in your workplace, in your, in your uh, relationship with God, in church life, all of those, in all of those areas, it's finding somebody that loves you and cares about you and opening yourself up so that they can actually challenge you. It's not about letting anyone who's anyone just take a swipe at you. But every single one of us needs to seek out relationships with people that love and care for us, that can challenge us. The truth is that while ever we avoid, avoid the uncomfortable nature of being challenged, growth will never occur in our lives. I was thinking as, uh, for an example of, of this. And uh, I remember when our oldest boy, Noah, was learning to, uh, was learning to walk. You know, for you, for you parents out there, it's a real privileged moment in your life, isn't it? Seeing, you know, one of your, one of your children learning to walk. And, uh, and the thing is, you know, he needed, some, he needed some encouragement. And what me and Lucy used to do was we would, uh, would sit, you know, maybe, you know, a few feet apart or something like that and sit on the, 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 the floor. 
and one of us would be holding him, the other ones would be there with their arms, uh, arms out. And when we could see that he got like a little bit of sturdiness to his legs, he used to be really off balance, he used to fall over at anything, he still does sometimes. Um, but he, uh, when we could see that a little bit of strength was coming to his legs and a little bit of balance, we tried, we tried to encourage him. And, we'd and eventually, as he took a few steps, we'd take our hands away and he'd walk to the other person and, uh, you know, and, Lucy, and Lucy would grab him. But here's the thing, sometimes he'd fall over, sometimes he'd lose balance, it didn't go very well. And you know what children are like, they get discouraged, don't they? And they get disheartened and it's like, I'm never trying that ever again because it didn't go well. So we had to, we had to challenge him. We had to say, come on, get, get up again, you can do this. You had to affirm him, you had to tell him, you're doing a really, really great job. Come on, buddy, you can do this, keep going for it. So what I'm saying to you is, slowly but surely, he began to walk. Change took place in his life as a result of challenge. So change is facilitated by challenge. You know, this week, uh, you know, and Pastor Danny brought a, a message this last Sunday morning talking about the Reformation. You'll have heard a lots and lots about the Reformation, so I'm not going to go on, on about it for a long time. But the Reformation, uh, it was the, the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation this week. Um, and, uh, and what I was thinking was this. What started the whole Reformation off? Just think about it for a minute. What started the whole Reformation off? It was a challenge, wasn't it? Yeah. It was basically a challenge. Yeah. It was Martin, guys like Martin Luther and some of the other fantastic men of God, these reformers. Um, you know, Martin Luther going famously knock, uh, nailing his 95 Theses you know, to the door uh, of the, the, um, the church in Wittenberg in Germany. And uh, in its essence, the Reformation was started by a challenge from guys like Martin Luther and the rest of the reformers saying to the, to the whole Christian world, look, we've, we've strayed from the truths of the faith. We've strayed from the truths of the faith. We need to admit to this and we need to make a change. I want to ask you this question tonight. Are you willing to be challenged? It's a difficult question to answer, isn't it? Because sitting in a you know, sitting in a room like this, it's all right when you're in front of, you know, a, a preacher and you're in, you know, a congregation in a church. You know, sometimes you answer questions a little bit more freely, but I'm not talking kind of about this challenge because, you know, anybody can be challenged in this kind of setting, can't you, really? Because it's expected. But what about in them one-to-one -one kind of moments in your life? When something may not be right, and you know something's not right, and somebody challenges you about it, are you willing to be challenged? I just want to make this, I want to make this, uh, just say something. This is only my, my own personal opinion. Again, cue to, to pack it in. Um, this is just my own personal opinion, right? I felt like it was overhead, didn't it? German bombers or something, they'll get down. Um, this is my own personal opinion, right? But I, I feel as a society that we've become so weak and I don't mean weak in a physical sense or anything like that. I feel, I mean more weak in the sense that we, we can't be challenged anymore, can we? We find it really, really hard to be challenged. And I think we're worse off for that. I believe it's a dangerous downward spiral that we're on because it means that nobody has to change anymore. If, you don't, if, you, if you're unwilling to be challenged, then it means that nobody has to be changed anymore. If you say, you know... These days, if you say, I'm offended by something, then everybody has to back off and just pander to your needs. So if you're, uh, you know, being offended by something is like, uh, you know, the 21st century social get out of jail free card, isn't it? And we've become, qu quickly become experts at using it. 
You know, I may be wrong about something, but if somebody challenges me about my behaviour and I don't really like the way they challenge me, if I say that I'm offended by it, then it doesn't matter whether I was wrong or right. I can just get away with it. I think that's a fair assessment, isn't it? And it's weak, isn't it? It's, you know, for want of a better word, it's a bit pathetic, really. Being so easily offended enables us to never have to own up to our own character flaws and deal with our own behaviour. Being offended uh, has essentially become a means of getting away with the things that we don't want to face up to in our lives, isn't it? Bad behaviour can't be called out for what it is anymore. You're not allowed to say that to me. If it hurts my feelings, then it's wrong. Can I just suggest to you, sometimes the things that hurt our feelings are actually the most beneficial things to us. I'm not, like I said, I'm, I, this isn't the, you know, me saying we should open ourselves up to, uh, to abuse or anything like that. But being offended is, is be, has become like the social norm now, isn't it? Nobody has to change anymore because we're, if I'm offended by something, you're not allowed to challenge me. Can I just say to you, you know, on a personal note, some of the best, most life-giving things that have been said to me have actually hurt my feelings. You know, believe it or not, some of the most life-giving things, the things that have benefited me the most, have really hurt my feelings. But boy, did they change me when I finally became willing to get over, you know, when I was finally willing to get over my own self-pity. Oh my gosh, that really hurt, Lord. That really, 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 really hurt. When I finally got over my own self-pity, I realised, my word, these are, these are the words of life. These, are, these things are actually going to benefit me. I'm going to grow in God through this. I'm serious. It may have hurt my feelings in the moment, but it brought life when I actually let it affect me and change me. Listen to these words. These are wise words. Solomon, King Solomon spoke many of these, but this one really, really stuck out to me this week when I was preparing for this. Proverbs 4, 20 and 22. It says, My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ears to my words. Don't let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Sometimes the words of life aren't always the easiest words for you to take. Is that all right? Is this, is this helping anybody tonight? And that leads me nicely on to the next point. I'm going to move along quickly for the sake of time. Teachability. Second one, teachability. You know, if we're to be followers of Jesus that are going to change and become more like him, then we need to be teachable. So many of us stumble and fail and struggle to progress in our relationship with God because we're simply unteachable. We have no desire to learn. We're, you know, we're know-it-alls. You know, you won't admit to that. You won't say it out loud or anything like that. But the character that you portray, and I can portray at certain times, is one that knows it all. Can I just say to you, you don't know it all. You don't know it all, and I don't know it all. So what does an unteachable heart look like? I thought, is, is this, this is good, but let's, just, let's put some characteristics down so that we can build up a picture. What does an unteachable heart look like? Someone who doesn't accept responsibility for your failures, but blames everybody else. Someone who doesn't seek to accept one-to-one -one personal guidance or mentoring, you know, from parents, teachers, pastors, elders, etc. Someone who doesn't listen but talk, 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 talk about yourself. Especially, you know, when you're with somebody that you can learn a lot from. We all get, you know, some of us are in real privileged positions in our lives to actually learn something from someone who knows a lot more than us. 
But we're so quick to talk, 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 that we never open these and learn. Someone who doesn't take criticism or correction without resentment or retaliation. Is, is that you? Like I said, don't raise your hands or anything like that, or that'll be embarrassing for you. But is that you? Be honest with yourself tonight. When correction comes, are you able to take it, or do you get resentful, and do you, can you not help it but retaliate about it? Someone who resists moving out of personal comfort zones in work, in study, in ministry, in relationships, but always looks for the easy and familiar route. And in contrast, what does a teachable spirit look like? What does a teachable heart look like? Here's just a few for you. You know, this isn't an ex exhaustive list. You know, you could add things this, to this for yourself, but I feel like this is a good list. You're aware of your limitations. Are you aware of your limitations? You're aware of your limitations and your own knowledge and abilities. You regularly ask for help and instruction and guidance and advice before the disaster strikes. You know, could I just suggest to you, I'm just using marriage again as an example. You know, would you not think it would be beneficial to get some advice about marriage before you end up on the rocks? Yeah? This is simple stuff, isn't it? Do you think it would think be good to, for you to get advice about parenting before, you know, your wife's even pregnant? Because I think it would. I think that, that Solomon talks quite a lot in the Proverbs about living a wise life. And sometimes living a wise life is being ready for things before they happen. Seeking guidance before the disaster hits. A teachable heart looks like this. You listen to others carefully and patiently with a desire to learn from everyone. I want to ask you tonight, you know, what, what age group are you? You know, for you, for you that may be a little more senior, are you willing to listen to somebody that may not be in your age group? For you people that are quite young, are you listening to somebody that's not in your age group? I believe that we can learn something from everyone if we're willing and we're open to. You're prepared to move out of your comfort zones. Try something different, make mistakes, look stupid. That's a big one, isn't it? We don't like looking stupid, do we? Like I said, we don't like feeling vulnerable. But a teachable heart is somebody that's willing to look stupid every now and again because that we realise that there's benefit now and again in looking a little bit stupid and a little bit foolish and getting something wrong because we realise we're going to learn something from that. It's okay to answer incorrectly sometimes. It's okay for you to not know everything. Someone who is willing to change your views and your practices, even if that means admitting that you were wrong? Are you, are you willing to admit that you were wrong? This is one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? It's one of the hardest things to do, to admit that you were wrong. Change comes to ears that are willing to listen and learn, even when the lesson is tough and may not necessarily be what you want to hear. This young man, this rich young ruler that we talk about it, that we spoke about it in Mark 10, the lesson wasn't what he was expecting, and it certainly wasn't what he wanted to hear. And unfortunately, he didn't humble his heart. He says he walked away. You know, that's, that's a sad part. There's no indication anywhere else that he came back. Third one, let's move on. Third one is accountability, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw to a close in a minute. Lasting change needs accountability for it to take hold in your life. You know, the enemy and even your own flawed human nature, like I said, your flesh, 
will try to rob the change that's taking place in your life. The things that God is doing in your life, can I just tell you? Doesn't sound very good out there, does it? The, uh, uh, put me off that, then it scared me. The enemy and even your own flawed human nature will try to rob the very things that God is doing in your life. Accountability is the safeguard to what God is doing in your heart. I'll say that again. Accountability is the safeguard to what God is doing in your heart. I said this, I've already said this, but if the only person you're accountable to is you, then you aren't going to grow in God. It doesn't matter how much you try, you're not going to grow in God. If accountability isn't there to safeguard what God is doing in your life, then no matter how motivated you are, you will fail, and the change that started to take root will come to nothing. We all need accountable relationships in our lives. Can I also add this, uh, you know, what I, I feel is a great piece of advice for you as well. When you're looking for accountable relationships, can I just say this? It doesn't necessarily have to be someone that you get along with. It doesn't have to be somebody that you're going to be best pals with. Is that, I feel like that's good advice. Is that helpful to anyone? You don't have to have a similar personality yours or somebody who's got the same interest. You don't, you don't have to have somebody who's going to go and play football with you and, uh, you know, and be interested in watching the same television programs as you and, and all that kind of thing. You don't have to find them fun to be with. But it can still be an extremely life-giving relationship because you're allowing someone that cares about you. It's got to be somebody that cares about you, can I just say, first and foremost. It's got to be somebody that cares about you. You don't just let anybody speak into your life. But you let somebody that cares about you challenge you. I'd w I would go as far as to say this, actually. Um, when it comes to you finding an accountable relationship, somebody to speak with about your, uh, about your growth in God, and about the personal things in your life, I would actually say, I would err on the side of saying, find somebody that isn't going to be your best pal. Find somebody that isn't going to be your best buddy, because what, what tends to happen in those kind of relationships is they're not going to tell you the truth. You know, we've all got relationships like that, and I'm not saying that they're bad or anything like that. Some of the people that we're really, really close, uh, you know, pals with and stuff, you know now and again that you don't agree with what they're doing, but you don't want to tell them about it because you fear that the, the relationship's going to be harmed in some kind of way. Am I going to offend them and this is going uh, to affect the relationship? You don't need that kind of relationship if it's an accountable relationship. You need somebody who you can be completely true with and somebody who's going to be completely true with you without the fear of upsetting you. Is this good, anybody? Like, this, is, this is helping me. I feel like I'm preaching to myself. This is, uh, this is a good, sound advice. And that's the difference, isn't it, between a friend and a buddy. Like, let me tell you what a friend is. Let me tell you what a friend is, right? This is the difference between a friend and just a pal. Someone who will be willing to tell you when you're making bad choices. Yeah? Someone who doesn't just appease you. In other words, somebody that doesn't just agree with you. You know, I got the sack at work. You know, you know deep down they got the sack at work because they're a bad employee and, you know, they were finishing 10 minutes early every night or something like that and the boss found out about it and they got sacked. You know, you don't want somebody who's going to go, oh, you know, the boss treated you so badly, didn't they? Oh, my word, I can't believe they did that to you. You need somebody who's going to tell you the truth. I would have sacked you as well. Somebody who's going to be really honest with you. Someone who isn't so insecure that they need your attention constantly and vice versa. 
you don't need a, that, that kind of a relationship won't work if, it's, if you wanted to be accountable to them. You know, if you get touchy just because somebody didn't, you know, like your Facebook status or something like that, for goodness sake, or, you know, somebody who didn't text you back straight away or they didn't answer your phone call straight away, that's not going to be a beneficial relationship to you. That's not a friendship. That's a relationship built on neediness that will do you more harm than good. A friend is someone that is more interested in your long term than your immediate situation. How about that one? Someone who is more interested in your long term relationship with God than your immediate situation. What I mean by that is someone who recognises that your relationship with God and your spiritual growth over the long haul is actually of more importance than how you may be feeling in this present situation right now. I know that that's a little bit tough. I'm not saying that anybody be harsh on anyone. If you're going through something really difficult, you know, we stand with you. But you've got to look at the big picture. You've got to look at the big picture. The, the life of, you know, the, the, your, your journey with God is for the long haul. It's not just for now. It's not just for the immediate. So let me just ask you a series of questions. I'm going to finish with, I'm going to finish with these. Who makes you aspire to be a better person? I mean, I actually come up with a name, you know, write them down or whatever you want to do. Again, you can come find me afterwards and I'll, I'll give you these, questi uh, these questions again. Who makes you aspire to be a better person? Next one, who challenges your thinking? Third one, who cares enough to rebuke you? Do you have somebody like that in your life? Because I, I would say to you, if you don't have somebody like that in your life, you need somebody like that in your life. Who inspires you to seek God and become more like Christ? Who stirs your passion? Who stirs your heart? You know, when you're around them, do they, you know, do they drag you down into, you know, thinking really small? Or do they, or do they inspire you to take hold of what God's got for us? So I'm going to finish there. You know, I've got uh, some other things that I could go into, but, you know, I may bring them out in another message. But, um... You know, there's a, there's a lot of things for us to consider there. A lot of things for us to consider there. You've got, if you want to grow in God, then you need to be able to be challenged. If you, be honest with yourself. If you don't feel like you can be challenged, it's going to be hard for you to grow in God. You need to be teachable. If you think you know it all, you're not going to grow in God. And you've got to have accountable relationships as well. If you've not got accountable relationships, then seek somebody out. Seek somebody that's not going to be your best buddy. Seek somebody that's not going to tell you everything that you want to hear. Seek somebody out that loves you so much that maybe, just maybe, they may have to offend you. It's difficult, isn't it? But we've got to open ourselves up to it.